Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. So yeah. how, how are you tonight? Me? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. That's Bye. good. So we should probably just get into it, right? Okay. Wanna- Sounds good to me. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I don't really know what it is. So. Yes, you do. Well, once you start telling me, I'll remember. Yes, you will. Okay, okay. ready? Yes. Okay. If this episode sounds a little familiar, it's because we did a main mini way back in episode 63, then several updates after that. That said, there's obviously a lot to the story we haven't covered a lot, so I'm doing that now. My sources are the Daily Sitka Sentinel from 1993, accessed on newspapers.com, and actually they're mostly Associated Press stories. The Fairbanks Daily News Miner, which I got a one-month subscription to for this story. Current editions of the Anchorage Alaska Daily News, which wanted me to subscribe for a year, and I didn't have $99. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, I know. I mean, no offense. Well, not for a newspaper, but it's a year. But um, no, they got to make money. I understand that. But they actually ran Lewiston, Maine, Sun Journal stories on this. So, and I have a subscription to that anyway. So I use the Sun Journal and KTVF TV in Alaska, which had printed stories online that were much more detailed than the newspapers. And if I use other sources, I'll let you know. I know there are some podcasts that have done this case, particularly regional Alaska and Maine ones. I have not listened to them. Yeah. I'm just saying that because we're not copying anybody. We've been talking about this since March of 2019. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like listening to other podcasts about stuff. I don't like that we're going to do. I don't want to be influenced. And all this is my Exactly. Sometimes I listen after. I don't know. I probably won't on this. I don't like to, because a lot of things like this one, it took forever to write. And I got so immersed in that. I feel like I would get frustrated. There's a lot that you could easily get wrong. Yeah. And a lot of misinformation and a lot of contradictory information. And I'm not saying I'm any better than anybody else, but I would just get frustrated if people had different you know it's the same when i watch a documentary on tv about something i know a lot about and mm-hmm. so, but anyway stephen downs 47 of auburn maine was convicted in fairbanks alaska on february 10th of this year of first degree murder and first degree sexual assault and the death of sophie sergey at the university of alaska fairbanks in april 1993 in a lewiston maine sun journal story after downs conviction Reporter Christopher Williams asks readers that, after considering the facts, how would they have voted if they were on the jury? Well, let's take a look. Sophie Sergey, a Yubik indigenous native, lived in Pitkiss Point, Alaska, a village of a little over 100 people along the Yukon River in the Yukon River Delta. As a teenager, she'd wanted to follow in the footsteps of her older brother, Alexei, and join the Navy, but she was too small five feet tall and 110 pounds. Instead, she went to the University of Alaska at Fairbanks, hundreds of miles to the east from her village. Sophie had a full scholarship and was majoring in marine biology. She did well at school. She was smart and hardworking. She took part in leadership programs and academic decathlons. She didn't do drugs, drink, or party. She took native dance classes while on campus, taught by her Alaska native studies teacher, Teresa John, 
and Sophie helped teach the dance steps to other students in her Native Studies class. This was before texting and cell phones made it easy for parents to keep tabs on their kids, but Sophie called her mother Elena and Pitka's point every day when she was a Wow. Kid. I know. Just like you did. And to put it in perspective, I was in college about 10 years before Sophie, and most of us didn't have phones in our rooms because they, it cost an extra $5 a month freshman year. And there was a pay phone in our dorm for all three floors and a stairwell down at the ground floor where the classrooms were. If you wanted to call someone, you had to wait to use it. If it rang and you were walking by and no one was waiting there, you'd answer, then go find the person the call was for. I can remember several times knocking on the door of a student I didn't know to tell them they had a phone call. And that's the way things were back then. Needless to say, I was happy to be away from home and wrote occasionally to my parents, but rarely called them. Anyway, enough about me. <laughs> Sophie was shy, but also, quote, always happy, always excited about things, her friend Shirley Wasuli said. She had a lot of friends, too, many of them indigenous people from small villages like her own. Alaska's indigenous population is about 15% of the state's population. Well, they are called generally Alaska Natives. That kind of puts a white spin on it, since Alaska is a white concept, just like calling indigenous people in the U.S. as a whole Native Americans is a white concept because oh. they were here before there was America. To put that in perspective, Sophie's people, the Yupik, are also in eastern Russia. And for those of you who may not be aware, Alaska and Russia are separated by the Bering Strait, a distance of about 55 miles. Thousands of years ago, there was a land bridge connecting the two countries, and there are still islands in the Bering Strait that are home to Native people. Just a little fun fact. Interesting. Yes. In any case, Sophie, like many of her friends, was connected to her culture and ancestry. Teresa John, the Alaska Native Studies professor at UAF, said that Sophie was a pleasure to teach. She always had questions. She always wanted to learn more after class, John said. Despite her success at school, Sophie was taking the 1992-93 school year off. She was having orthodontic work done and got a job as a teaching assistant in Pickus Point to help pay for it and by some accounts to also get health insurance. Despite what some press accounts said, she did intend to return to finish college. She was just taking a year off. She hadn't dropped out. Okay. The weekend of April 25th, 1993, she made the trip to Fairbanks for an orthodontic appointment that Monday morning and to catch up with friends at the university. She planned to fly home Monday after the appointment. On Friday, April 23rd, she flew to Bethel, Alaska, and spent the night with a family friend. The next day, Saturday, April 24th, she continued to Fairbanks, where she planned to spend the weekend in the Bartlett Hall dormitory with Shirley Wasuli, her friend from Picus Point. Bartlett Hall was an eight-story dorm that housed 332 students with separate alternating floors for boys and girls. Like most colleges, each floor had a couple of common bathrooms with toilets, sinks, and, sh and shower areas that were strictly for the gender of the people who lived on the floor. In other words, only girls could use the girls' bathroom on the girls' floor. Shirley picked Sophie up the afternoon of Saturday, April 24th at the airport in Fairbanks, and the two visited the university's Rural Student Services Center, ran some errands, then had dinner in Hess Commons, the dining area connected to Bartlett Hall and shared by its companion dorms, Moore and Scarland. All the buildings are connected, and back then there was one common entrance for all three dorms. 
It was a pain for the students who had to carry three keys, one for the main entrance, one for their dorm entrance, and one for their room. Mm. After dinner, Sophie stopped by her friend Joanne Sundown's room. The two hung out reading magazines, and Joanne took a photo of Sophie. While Sophie was 20, she looks much younger in the photo, propped up on an elbow on a bed, smiling despite her braces with curly dark hair and glasses. Hmm. On Sunday, Sophie called her mother, Elena, around 4 p.m. after she and Joanne had run some errands around Fairbanks and got their hair done. Sophie chatted with her mother about a kite that Sophie had bought for her little brother, who was three at the time, a few days before. The kite was broken, but Sophie had told her brother she'd get him a better one when she got back if he behaved over the weekend. While Sophie was gone, someone back home had gotten the broken kite to fly, Elena told Sophie. We were laughing about it, her mother told a reporter years later. That was the last time I talked to her, late Saturday afternoon. We were talking about that kite. Hmm. Sophie told her mom she'd see her the next afternoon and said goodbye. Later, Sophie, Joanne, and two other friends went to the movie Indian Summer. If you don't remember Indian Summer, mm-hmm. you're not alone. It starred Alan Arkin, Diane Lane, Elizabeth Perkins, Bill Paxton, and some others. and was, wow. about, was about seven adults in their 30s meeting to relive the best summer of their lives that they had mm-hmm. at summer camp, only to find out the Uncle Lou, played by Arkin, the camp owner, was going to shut it down and sell it to a developer. Hmm. After seeing the movie, the group went to the Murphy Dome, a popular spot half an hour from Fairbanks where you can view the Northern Lights. Joanne took another photo of Sophie from above. Sophie has her arms spread out, smiling at the camera. When she got back to the dorm, Sophie, her friend Shirley, and Shirley's boyfriend, Noah Naylor, ate pizza, drank soda, and talked in Shirley's room on the second floor. They didn't drink or do any drugs. Even though it was a Sunday night, kids were partying. Classes had ended for the semester and finals were about to start. If you went to college and lived on campus, you probably remember the weekend before finals well. Kids with exams the next day or who took their studies seriously were holed up in the library or somewhere studying. Other kids were partying like they didn't have a care in the world. At one point, Sophie went down to the commons on the ground floor, one flight down to get a soda. This may have been when she was seen smoking with a group of students outside in front of the commons a little before midnight. It's been referred to as last time she was known to be seen alive, yet according to other timelines, when she got back to the room, Shirley and Noah were still there. Sophie told Shirley she wanted to smoke a cigarette, and since it was so cold outside, Shirley told her to go to the girls' bathroom because it had a separate little-used bathtub room that had a vent to the outside where Sophie could smoke. And I'm assuming that smoking was not allowed in the dorms. In the dorm rooms, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, this was around the time that that would have all started. No smoking stuff would have started. According to an affidavit in the case, Sophie then left to go smoke. It's not clear if she went outside, downstairs first, and smoked with that group of students, then went to the tub room, or if she went to the tub room to smoke. In any case, Sophie was going to sleep in Shirley's bed that night. Shirley had a single... And Shirley was going to Noah's room. When Sophie wasn't back by the time that Shirley and Noah were ready to go around 1.30, Shirley left her a note on the door telling her where they'd gone. As they went into the stairwell, Shirley and Noah passed two boys and a girl. And when I say boys and girl in this, I mean students. It's just easier to say boy and girl. And okay. I just feel funny calling them, calling them men and women when they're, you know, basically teenagers. One of the boys, someone she didn't know, made eye contact. 
There were two bathrooms on the second floor, one larger one with the tub room and a smaller one right next to it with a wall in common with the tub room. At around 2 a.m., Jennifer Roy, a senior, was taking a shower in the smaller bathroom when she heard thumping and muffled voices coming from the bathtub room. The shower she was in had a wall in common with the bathtub room, but she was in a different bathroom. At first, I thought somebody fell. I wasn't sure what was going on. It was a very loud sound. It scared me on my side of the shower. She then said she heard what sounded like someone being pushed against the wall or something. Quote, it was definitely loud, like it sounded like someone got hurt. She said when she finished her shower, it sounded like someone was still over there. I knew they were in there because I never heard the door open again. I guess you could hear the door. The walls must have been thin, not cinder blocks like the college I went to. And I guess you could hear the doors open and shut through the wall. Something really seemed off to me. I did start to go over there, and then I just thought, I don't want to interrupt somebody. Maybe this isn't any of my business. It's always bothered me that I didn't go over. Mm-hmm. Vanessa Allen, a freshman, was also taking a shower that night in the bigger bathroom, the bathroom where the tub room was. I found a diagram of the bathroom, oh. and I'll put it on our website. But basically, the showers were in a separate area from the toilets and sinks. Okay. And I think they had little dressing rooms. I'm trying to picture it because I can't find it, but I'll. And then the tub room was around behind the showers. Like you went around them through a little door. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So it was hidden kind of in the back. But so Vanessa Allen, a freshman, was taking a shower that night in the big bathroom where the tub room was. When she went in, she noticed that a light was on in the tub area and the door was closed. The door was didn't go all the way to the bottom. It was like a bathroom stall yeah. door the door to the tub room. She said that was unusual. She said no one ever used the tub room that she knew of. I went in and I turned on the shower and I kept looking at the light because I was like, that light is just, it's never on. It's just never on. I just felt like something was out of place. It wasn't right. Oh, and I should say the wall didn't go all the way up to the top and the showers between the shower and tub room. Like, yeah, that makes sense. She saw the light. Well, she was in the shower. She heard a noise from the direction of the tub area. Quote, it sounded like firecrackers. It was like someone telling me I need to get out of the shower. She also heard a rustling sound like bodies make when they're moving, coming from the same direction. Another student, a woman, of course, came into the bathroom to use the sink while Alan was in the shower and called out, is anyone there? Alan came out of the shower and the two women spoke briefly before Alan left the bathroom and went to her single room down the hallway, locking the door behind her. As she was getting ready to go to sleep, her doorknob shook as if someone was trying to enter her room, she said. Uh. Quote, I think, okay, that's kind of odd. She said it made her feel very uneasy. And I yeah. yeah, I'd be creeped out. Meanwhile, across the hall from the bathroom, Melanie Sagunik and her roommate were up late watching TV. Melanie was thinking about changing her goldfish's water, a task she used the tub room for since the pitcher she used didn't fit under the sink faucets, but then she decided against it. Outside her room, though, because she had gone out and then decided she didn't want to do it. Outside her room, though, she heard a noise. Quote, it sounded like the top of a trash can hitting a concrete floor. It was noticeably louder than the normal noises she would hear in the dorm. And she thinks it happened sometime between 11 and midnight, but she's not sure. Sometime later, she went to use the bathroom. And while she was washing her hands, a guy scurried out of the shower area and not looking at her, left the bathroom. Quote, I didn't get a real good look. It was brief, she said. She didn't recognize him. 
He was about five foot eight, she thought at the time, and she remembers him as wearing a gray patterned shirt and having short, dark hair. The next day, she described him to police as dark, which police took to mean ethnic of some sort, either native or Hispanic. Years later, when she said he could have been a Caucasian, she was questioned about what seemed like a discrepancy. Hmm. But, But she pointed out that she, an indigenous person, came from a small village and didn't have much contact with white people before she went to college. If someone asked her if someone was white, she would think of them as very pale. And it took her a while to get used to the fact that white people can indeed be dark. Hmm. He knew for sure, she said, that he wasn't a native. It's interesting that her explanation was totally screwed up in the main newspaper that covered the trial, but the Alaska reporter seemed to get exactly what she was saying. Uh Another argument for a little diversity and understanding others' points of view. And speaking of that, the issue comes up a little later, and I'll say a little more about it when it does. Anyway, Melanie said the guy was in a hurry. She was right behind him leaving the bathroom, and right when I had the door open, he was already reaching for the door to the main hallway, unquote. When Shirley, Sophie's friend, returned to her room a little before nine the next morning, the note she'd left for Sophie was still on the door. The TV was on just as it had been when she and Noah left the night before, and so were the lights. At first, Shirley assumed Sophie was taking a shower, In 2009, Shirley told a reporter, I was a little bit agitated that she had left my door unlocked. But when she didn't come back, Shirley started looking for her. Shirley came to realize that Sophie had never returned to the room the night before. Quote, when I walked in, my bed was still made. She hadn't slept on it and odd things like that, that I didn't right away notice when I walked in at first. When Shirley couldn't find Sophie, she got worried. She was supposed to take her to the orthodontist appointment and then to the airport. At first, she thought maybe Sophie had gone to the appointment some other way, so Shirley eventually called the orthodontist. Sophie had never shown up. This was totally out of character. Now Shirley knew that something was wrong. She looked around the dorm and campus for Sophie, but couldn't find her. Around 2.30 that afternoon, Okaha and Chetta and her supervisor on the custodial staff went into the second Uh, floor and went went into the second floor bathroom to clean it. Okaha made her way to the tub room. She didn't have to get past the doorway to know what she was looking at, a body in the bathtub. And the room was very small. The the tub was just a few steps from the doorway. Okaha yelled for her supervisor who came over to look. Okaha then left the bathroom and went out into the hallway. Quote, I was shivering. I was scared. I don't know how I'm going to describe it. I was so scared. Okaha knocked on Jennifer Roy's door. It doesn't say in any of the stories, but since Jennifer was a senior, I'm wondering if she was an RA. Yeah, maybe. Because at least when I went to college, the dorms were kind of separated by class, like freshmen and sophomores. You wouldn't find any seniors on the same floor of freshmen and sophomores unless they were RAs, but who knows. And those were kind of for people who don't know, older students who were kind of I I don't want to call them house mothers or anything, but they were the authority figure on the floor. They're kind of supposed to keep order and they're the person you went to if you had a problem, Hmm. that kind of thing. Thankless job. Yeah. Okaha, the custodian, was upset and screaming as she knocked on Jennifer's door. Jennifer said later, I could hardly understand her. Jennifer called for help. Okaha, by the way, was so upset by the whole thing that she quit the job. She'd had it for less than a year, but she quit. That would cause me to want to quit. Yes. Dan Foley, 
the director for residence life at hmm. the college got a call that afternoon. I'm not sure exactly what it said, but he was walking over to the dorm on his way. He passed the campus police station and chief Dale Florian was just leaving in his car, which I looked at a diagram of the cam- campus and the police station is like three buildings from the dorm, but I guess chief Dale Florian had to drive. And he said to Foley, hop in, we have an emergency. When they got there, it was chaos. And the police asked Dan Foley to start controlling the foot traffic in and out of the building. Crowd control, for lack of a better word, Foley later said. Investigators found Sophie was lying in a fetal position in the tub. Her pants and underpants were pulled down past her knees, and her sweater was pushed up around her neck and armpits. The right cup of her bra was also pushed up, exposing her breast. The left side of her face was against the tub over the drain. Her arms were above her head, near the spigot. Her hair and clothes were damp, indicating water had been run on her body after the assault. Some hay was made later about her clothes being damp when the tub wasn't. But do this when you get a chance. Run water in your tub with the drain open and soak a sweater in it. Take the sweater out. See which one is still damp 14 hours later. Just saying. (laughs) <laughs> and if you're wondering what my point is, the sweater will still be wet. The tub <laughs> yeah. will not. Anyway, the right side of her face was covered with dried mm. blood. And the autopsy would later find she'd been stabbed twice in the right eye while she was still Ugh. alive and been killed by a single gunshot to the back of the head. The gun pressed right against her head. After she was dead, she was stabbed more in the face. Investigators Ugh. later concluded the stab wounds were made with a knife that had a thin blade. There were also abrasions and marks on her abdomen and right thigh, and her right knee was bruised. And just a note, you don't bruise from injuries after you die because bruising is caused by blood rushing to the wound. There can be bruise-like injuries from blood pooling, but those are at the lowest point of gravity. So those were all from before she died. I know that stuff from writing mystery novels. Yes. And I go into her injuries, not to be gratuitous, but for you to remember that obviously she struggled before dying because this, again, will be another issue. The autopsy also found semen in her vaginal canal and a little on her thigh, but not in a spot anywhere where it had had dripped from her own body. What I'm saying is she hadn't stood up after she had had sex. She hadn't been upright. There was none in her underwear or outside her body, as I said, indicating she hadn't stood up after the intercourse. It's not clear if this was obvious to the male investigators, but it would years later be obvious to the female prosecutor and other females involved in the case that she had not stood up after having sex. Because any woman who has had sex knows that it will drip out and drip onto your underpants and stuff. And this is one of the many reasons why I say only women should be investigators. <laughs> I know, I know. And there will be more on that. Even so, the immediate conclusion was that she'd been sexually assaulted before she was murdered. Investigators also found her cigarette lighter underneath her body in the tub drain when they moved her body. A little after three that afternoon, when Shirley and Noah were sitting in her room wondering what to do next to figure out where Sophie was, there was a knock at the door. It was two Alaska state troopers. Shirley told the investigators Sophie was missing. Her stuff, including her driver's license, were still in the room. When Shirley showed one of the troopers Sophie's license, he took it down the hall to the bathroom and investigators identified the body in the tub as Sophie. 
Alaska State Troopers, and that's the name for the Alaska, like a main, we have the main state police in Alaska. The official name is Alaska State Troopers. Okay. Or I wouldn't keep saying it because it sounds mm-hmm. kind of Alaska State Troopers knocked on all the doors in the dorm that afternoon, including room 305, shared by freshman Nicholas Dazer and Stephen Downs. Mm. That afternoon, Dazer, Downs, and Downs' girlfriend, Kate Deschweinitz, were in the room. Police separated the three to talk to them, bringing Kate to a different room. Unlike Shirley and Sophie, Stephen and Kate had been partying the night before. Kate later described it as carousing. Hmm. Nicholas had been working as a campus community support officer, kind of like a student junior cop. It's unclear Hmm. what that entailed. It's described as patrolling. They didn't have weapons. I'm not sure what they were supposed to be doing anyway. Like a lot of things lost to time, we will never know what his (laughs) actual job was. Stephen and Kate had just started dating earlier that April. Dazer was working at his campus patrol job that weekend. Some reports say his beat or whatever you want to call it was elsewhere on campus, but he later said it was nearby the three connected dorms. After Sophie's body was found, he helped campus police keep people away from the crime scene, guarding a stairwell, though earlier he implied He'd gotten closer to the crime scene um, later. Yeah, he, but he did. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, that's all right. The day Sophie was found, Dazer, Deschweinitz, and Downs all told police they didn't know who she was. They were freshmen, after all, and Sophie was taking the year off, so they wouldn't have run into her on campus. The interview with the trio itself was brief. Police had a lot of students to track down an interview. My guess is police weren't checking alibis or anything like that, but rather asking kids if they'd seen anything odd or out of place. Kate at the time didn't tell police, for instance, that Stephen was in and out of the room a lot the night before. Years later, she'd remember it specifically because around 3 a.m., a guy she didn't like named Billy Wilson kissed her against her will. And that wouldn't have happened if Stephen had been there. He wouldn't have liked it at all. Uh, mm-hmm. if billy had even had the balls to do it i'm never sure when when this is described if the issue would have been that Stephen would have beat billy up or something or if billy was too wimpy to do it in front of Stephen. but in any case <laughs> well kate was talking to the police in that separate room the afternoon sophie's body was found Stephen came into the room during the interview even though he'd been told not to and he had to be shooed out mm-hmm. later, yeah later she'd recall that and think it was odd During his first conversation with investigators, Stephen, not for the last time, offered the theory that Sophie's attacker was likely somebody from the nearby military base, Fort Wainwright. Two years before, a female student was attacked in a bathroom of Scarland Hall next door by a Fort Wainwright soldier. Though Downs hadn't been a student there yet, he'd likely heard about it. But remember the story, it'll come up later. Not that general theory, but a more specific story. Shirley, Sophie's friend, that afternoon told police about the guys in the stairwell that she and Noah had passed as they left the room the night before. Remember, one guy had made eye contact with her. Police inferred from her description of the guy who made eye contact. She described him as dark, that he was an ethnic, maybe Hispanic. Years later, after Stephen Downs was arrested and she saw a 1993 photo of him, she said he was the guy who had made eye contact. His defense lawyer called this an inconsistency in that she was changing her story, but her explanation was similar to Melanie's, though not as clear. She was a native. When somebody asked her if somebody was white, 
She thought of white as being very pale. She didn't understand the distinction that a white person can be dark. She wasn't as clear when she tried to explain that, but she was obviously kind of trying to explain the same thing. And I can just see the police pressing her. Well, was he white or was he native? Was he Hispanic? And her not giving a clear answer and the police writing down that she said he was dark, native or Hispanic. Who knows how that conversation went down, but it seems to me a case of police not doing a great job of understanding someone of a different culture. I think this is an instance of white people not understanding a different point of view. What is white to us can be dark. People who are dark may be confused by what's meant by white. And even though years later, Down's lawyer tried to make it sound like he was fair and light haired, back then photos of him show dark hair. And while he wasn't olive skinned or anything, he wasn't pale either. And he spent a lot of time outdoors. Back to the days after Sophie's killing, Downs wasn't a suspect back then. He was just one of hundreds of students police tried to talk to in the days after her body was found. Police told reporters in the days following the killing that they had no way of knowing if Sophie's killer was someone who lived in the dorm or someone who didn't. Accounts then and now detail the chaos police encountered in trying to nail things down. In the days following Sophie's murder, they tried to get final exam schedules for all the students who lived in the three dorms as a way to see who was around, but that didn't help much. Anyway, many students had already left campus. No one was sure who was in and out of the three dorm complex that night, which housed nearly 800 students. That weekend, kids were in and out of all three dorms, both kids who lived in them and kids who didn't and visitors from off campus, making matters worse. Apparently, kids would change rooms without notifying the college. So kids who may have lived in the dorm actually didn't live there anymore. Kids who were living in the dorm weren't officially on the college's At UAF that weekend, friends were visiting, kids were partying across campus or studying for finals. It was none of the usual routine if it had been in the middle of the semester. And while there have been some troublesome incidents lately and stairwell doors were supposed to be locked, in general, just like when I was in college, you could walk yeah. in with someone else holding open the door and doors were often propped open yeah. at my college with rubbish bins or something. And my guess is, especially with the three key thing that, that remember they needed a door, a key for their own dorm and then a key for their room like i can't imagine shirley giving sophie copies of all three keys sophie was probably like i'll just have somebody let me in you know kind of thing in fact when i was in college if somebody was banging they were locked metal doors between the hallway to the dorm and the stairwell if somebody was banging on the door you would just go open it and let the person in i know and if it was a male student or something you would let him in that the person would have to be really creepy to not let them in Aside from the soldier from Fort Wainwright issue a couple of years before, there are more recent issues in the dorms. Two months before, a student on the second floor of Bartlett, the same one Sophie was killed on, was startled by a naked man in the woman's bathroom. Ooh. He was arrested. There had also been several complaints that semester of men who didn't belong on the women's floors being there. And I'm assuming this isn't just male students visiting friends or girlfriends, but actual men who shouldn't. It would come out a little later that two rapes had also been reported in the three dorm complex that spring, though it's not clear if anyone was ever identified or arrested for those rapes. And those are just the ones that were reported, of course. Uh. A former resident assistant, Jeremy Vermilia, told a reporter right after Sophie's murder 
that after the soldier incident two years before, RAs had asked the university for more security, but nothing had happened. It's been an accident waiting to happen, he said. I'm surprised it hadn't happened sooner. Current RAs at the dorm were also concerned. At an RA meeting just weeks before, they'd asked the administration to put locks on the bathrooms, but that request was also turned down. The article by the Associated Press that quoted Vermilia noted that on the day after Sophie's body was found, there was no extra security at the dorm and anyone could come and go as they pleased. Freshman Michelle Newton told the Associated Press, I pay a lot of money. I think they should be policing who goes in and out better. (laughs) Don Foley, the director of Resident Life, told the Associated Press that having monitors check people coming into the dorms have been stopped for budgetary reasons a couple years before. Mm. He promised changes would be made to make the dorms safer, though. The Fairbanks Daily News Miner, gotta love them, they put on their website recently during Down's trial the front page from the day that Sophie was killed. The story took up half of the front page, And then the other half looked like a lengthy story about security issues on campus, Mm. which I'm sure would have had great information. Unfortunately, they posted it as a JPEG, and it's impossible to read. Um, If they had gotten a PDF of it or something, that would have been very helpful. But but give them an A for effort. Anyway, in the 24 hours after Sophie was killed, at least 60 students moved out of the dorm in fear of their safety, according to the Associated Press. On Tuesday night, the day after Sophie was found, more than 300 Native students held a prayer meeting for her. Her autopsy was done on Wednesday, April 28th in Anchorage and confirmed that she died from a gunshot to the head. On Thursday, April 29th, which would have been my 32nd birthday. And I know that's what everybody was thinking, so I had to say Mm -hmm. it. A memorial service was held on campus. This was also attended by more than 300 students. Maybe 300 is just what the AP reporter put in every story. I I know. AP called it a subdued farewell that featured native drumming and mournful chanting. Hmm. Professor James Nagiak, who was also a Presbyterian minister, opened the service with a prayer on both Inupia, the language of Sophie's people, and English. Shirley Wasuli, Sophie's friend, spoke, first reading messages from Sophie's mother and others in Pitkiss Point, and then she said, it's important to know how much Sophie enjoyed life. Don't be bitter. We should continue to pray for the person who took Sophie away from us, unquote. Hmm. Nearly two weeks after Sophie's body was found, investigators told reporters that they had fingerprints, hair, and other evidence, but no suspect. Whoever did this is very, very angry at women, Alaska Hmm. State Police Sergeant Jim McCann, the lead investigator, said. He said the killer was also someone who was familiar with the campus and fit in. And my guess is because none of the students they talked to had reported seeing anybody who looked out of place. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and she was a woman, McCann said. He also said that, oddly, investigators had gotten only 10 phone calls with tips, He said, usually they're inundated with tips, even though many of the tips they get end up being nothing. McCann was speaking to the Fairbanks Daily News Miner on the Friday after Sophie's murder. Commencement was that coming Sunday when 750 students would get degrees. McCann admitted it would be even harder to investigate as students scattered across the state and the country. But he said that people in the community should still be vigilant. If the person was from the community, they may hear or see something of use. 
He also cautioned that this type of killing usually wasn't a one-time thing for a killer. He kind of stressed that this person would do it again, um, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But I just want to break in here to say that that was a belief for decades that's now been debunked a little bit, not that people don't kill again. But I recently heard a discussion among criminologists on a podcast. Some killers can commit a violent, angry murder, and it scares them straight, so to speak, Um, especially if they are young which doesn't mean they don't exhibit other red flag behavior in the later years. It just means they don't commit another murder. I would say from just what I know, obviously I'm not an expert, but we've been doing this for years and I read all this stuff and I do a lot of research for my books. This doesn't strike me as a sophisticated murderer. You know, there's nothing about it. I mean, it was obviously horrific and grisly, but there's nothing about it that says the person was sophisticated or, or had done it before. In any case, on May 7th, 1993, about two weeks after Sophie was killed, a $20,000 reward was offered for information that would lead to the conviction of the killer. That reward was set to expire in two years on April 15th, 1995. Six weeks later, despite the reward, it was pretty much the same story. Alaska State Troopers said leads had dwindled. Not that Hmm. they had that many. It didn't take them very long. No. Well, there was... And now I'm going to say it, but this was getting so long, I didn't want to put it in. But a month after she was killed, a guy who was very big in politics, he was kind of an odd, flamboyant guy named Joe Vogler disappeared. And it turned out he had been murdered. And that kind of sapped all their resources. Uh. It was a big deal. It it looked kind of interesting, but I don't want to get bogged down in it. But anyway... The good news for future potential victims is that UAF had plans to beef up security for the coming school year, including phones in all the rooms, paid student monitors to check student IDs for those entering dorms at night, improved campus lighting and emergency phones around campus, none of which would have helped Sophie. Just saying. They didn't say it, but I won't. I certainly expect the UAF campus to be safer, said Chancellor Joan Wadlow. She said that student awareness is the key, quote, not all students understand the importance of safety, starting with the person. Yes, there was the typical victim blaming, which is annoying Uh in a lot of ways. But one of the most annoying things is that it takes the focus away from who does these types of things and how do they get away with it? Uh It won't be the last time I say it in this episode, but Sophie did absolutely nothing wrong on that night, yet she was dead. The police, to their credit, point that out, too. They pointed it out back then, as you heard from Jim McCann, and they point it out now. But all the security stuff is great. It helps, but it wouldn't have helped her. And I think in a lot of ways, it's a smokescreen because they don't want to do the tougher things, which is trying to change toxic masculine culture. Exactly. Scott McRae, a student member of the safety committee, also put the onus on students themselves to be more careful, not to not assault other students, but to be more careful. If that, if, did that make sense, what I just said? Yes, Okay. I he, think so. He said, freshmen, many of whom are experiencing the first independence of their lives, quote, want to be wild and free. It's hard hmm. for them to live under rules unquote. Like I said, I want to point out that when you have a dorm of more than 300 kids, the focus shouldn't be just danger coming in from the outside. Just as Mm. the biggest danger to women is in the home, the biggest danger to girls at college is their fellow male students. Mm -hmm. But there doesn't seem to be any attention paid to that. No surprise. The investigation into Sophie's murder was a mess from the start. 
Alaska State Troopers had trouble talking to everyone they wanted to, as I've said, the dorms being a chaotic mix of students visiting, moving around, changing rooms, and more. Added to it was the fact that students were already starting to leave for the year, while police didn't have any record of who would still be on campus and who wasn't that weekend. For instance, 16 years after the murder, investigators said they still hadn't managed to track down and talk to all the people in the group that Sophie had been seen smoking with outside <laughs> the night of the murder. Finding and talking to people who were there wasn't the only problem with the investigation. And the time between when the custodian found Sophie's body and the time investigators got to the scene, at least 19 people, including students, had gone into the tub room to take a look. Oh, my gosh. I know everyone isn't a cop, but you'd think at the very least campus security or local cops would have secured the scene. At the scene, some investigators didn't wear gloves because it was just the beginning of them taking more care at crime scenes. The dorm was never locked down and searched for signs of a struggle somewhere other than the bathroom immediately following the killing. Interviews the investigators did have with students were perfunctory, and as we saw with the students who were natives, possibly got information wrong because they didn't understand the perspective of the kids they were talking to. Investigators never found the murder weapon and didn't appear to have searched the dorm for one right after the murder. Multiple students, all male, of course, turned out to have guns in their rooms, though it was forbidden, (laughs) but none of those were looked for or confiscated. Foley, Dan Foley, the dorm life director, said that they had a gun locker for kids who brought their guns to college to go hunting. You have to remember this is Alaska because security didn't want guns in the dorm rooms, but it wasn't enforced heavily because the whole gun locker thing was a giant pain in the ass and the kids wanted to keep their guns. And those are my words, not his. His explanation was just a mealy mouth, you know. The investigation apparently went on in fits and starts after those early days and into the next few years. By December 1996, nearly four years later, investigators were out of ideas, and an AP story marveled that they were now going to try what it unironically referred to as the World Wide Web. (laughs) When was this, 1994? 96. With capital W's to help in the investigation. WWW. Now, I'm old enough to remember it was briefly called the World Wide Web, and it's what WWW stands for. (laughs) Sorry. And sometimes we jokingly call it that now, at least I do, but this story is a real reminder about how things have changed. Mm. The story said that Alaska State Troopers planned to post a page on the internet looking for information about Sophie's murder and other unsolved deaths. Sergeant Jim McCann, who headed the investigation, said... I need to hear from people because the likelihood that he'll go on to kill others is considerable. The page, which sounds similar to many state police cold case pages these days, was going to have her photo, a paragraph about the crime, and information on where to call the tips. McCann said there hadn't been another similar sexual murder in the state in the three and a half years since Sophie had been killed, so they think the killer was either incarcerated, dead, or had moved out of state. He told the reporter that sexual murders are, quote, a brand of thrill killing carried out by someone who can only achieve satisfaction by repeating the act, unquote. Uh And I'm going to take issue with that assessment as I spoke a little about a few minutes ago. Knowing what we know now, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, experts now believe someone can be scared straight, and those are my words, um, by committing a murder and not do it again. Second of all, 
What about Sophie's murder doesn't also say drunk kid who attacked, raped, and killed a young woman? Maybe a rape that got out of hand, although he was armed. So using the gun either to scare her or because the gun made him feel like a big virile man was not out of the question. The bullet was a 22 caliber from a 22 caliber pistol, which are smaller than my not very large hands. I'm sure a lot of kids who liked weapons carried them around. He used the knife first. And what does that say? I'd like to hear an expert talk now in 2022 about the profile of the killer. It sounds almost like he might have used the gun to scare her. Mm -hmm. And then he decided he wanted to kill her because he raped her. He raped her. And he probably had a knife, which a lot of men carry pocket knives or knives. Right. So he stabbed her and didn't kill her right and so then he because he probably stabbed her to kill her because it doesn't make as much noise right and, and then he realized oh i gotta use he, the gun because and, she's right, not dead right and my guess was he was not a sophisticated killer no. who knew how to kill someone by stabbing them and he wasn't doing a very good job and we'll talk more about it later but mm-hmm. it, what the investigators didn't say which i think is more likely is you know some people kill because it gives them a thrill other people are rapists but then they kill the person because they've raped them and the person didn't go easily and they've hurt the person now they're going to get in trouble so they have to kill the person yeah anyway yeah. jim mccann hopes someone might see the information online and let them know about similar cases that'd be great he said Quote, if law enforcement officers or civilians read about this and say, hey, we had a case like this in our town. (laughs) That's all I need to know, McCann said. I'm hoping to reach thousands of people. I don't like having an unsolved sexual murder. And again, Mm. I I think one of the issues with the investigation is they were looking at it as a sexual murder rather than a rape where he killed the person. Uh, Not that that's any better, but who are you looking for? You know, the story goes on to say the news story that quoted McCann goes on to say that until recently, the information superhighway and yes, they call it that (laughs) had gone unused by law enforcement, but now they were seeing its benefits Mm. at the time. Only six police departments in Alaska had websites. My guess is not only did it have to do with it being a new technology that people were wary of, but also the same issue we have today. Law enforcement doesn't want to share information and stuff and possibly have someone else solve their case or step on their toes. The story says that the Fairbanks investigative page was built by Alaska State Trooper Administrative Clerk Vicki Roll after she, quote unquote, stumbled onto the state's web page. And so there's (laughs) nothing about the Alaska State Troopers on it. I would think if a state was creating, the state government was creating a web page, it would let all the state departments know (laughs) and you wouldn't have to stumble on it. But then then it has in the news story, and I just thought this is kind of cute, it has the website address complete with the HTTPS colon backslash backslash, which when people do that today, it drives me nuts. You don't have to put that in the newspaper. But I will say around the same time, I was a sports editor in New Hampshire. I actually remember uh, one of the reporters, Kevin Preventure, this is the first time I ever saw an internet address and he put it in a story and I was editing it. And I said, are you sure? That looks like a typo to me. 
because it's https colon back and he goes no that's that that's what it is because he goes i double checked it and i'm like wow and we're both like wow that is gonna be hard but sometimes you had to put it in it depended on what browser well, back you then you did. yeah back then you did but i'm saying no, now when, when you sometimes put internet you yeah i know paper you know i Another newspaper story from 1996, just a few paragraphs long, says an 18-year-old female UAF student was raped in the dorm room after somebody knocked on her door, and then when she opened it, forced his way in and raped her. It didn't say what dorm. They didn't have any suspects. There was nothing else about it in the paper after, and this happened in 1996. So, so much for security, you Hmm. know? And it was just business as usual for campus rapists, I'm sure, as I said, many of which weren't reported. In 1997, police interviewed four RAs. It's not clear why this didn't come out in 1993, but maybe it was coming out in 1997 because it had to do with that crazy World Wide Web information <laughs> or highway or whatever. In 1997, police found out that four RAs who were hanging out in a room one night, the weekend Sophie got killed, reported seeing two men, I assume out a window or something, get out of a car in front of one dorm, One guy was light, another was dark, and one of them said something like, let me go. I won't tell them what you did. I won't tell, I promise. Oh, God, I can't believe this is happening. Hmm. And the other, at some point, said, I can't believe you did that to her. You can't go home like that. And in another newspaper, it had a different account of what they said, but it was the same, Uh. in the same spirit. The two men were also supposedly screaming this discussion. Oh, yeah. But three of the four RAs wrote in in a formal police statement it's not clear when, and maybe it was in 1993 and this just resurfaced in 97, I don't know, but that they heard the conversation that Sunday night, hours before Sophie would have been killed. More on this later. At the time Sophie was killed, DNA processing technology had not been introduced in Alaska, but they saved the sperm they found in Sophie's vaginal canal and some saliva or something they found on her breast and eventually tested it. Some stories decades later said that despite the fact they didn't have DNA testing in Alaska at the time, they tested it for DNA anyway. I don't think that's what actually (laughs) happened because if they didn't have the testing, they couldn't test it. Um, I think what they used to do back then is test to see if the person was a secretor. And they also knew DNA testing was coming, so they did save it. In, In the year 2000, they did test it. And a DNA profile confirming the suspect as male was uploaded to the FBI database, but there were no matches. And I just like to say, I'm obviously no chemist, but it seems to me if the DNA comes from sperm, it's going to be from a male. (laughs) Just saying. They tested 13 suspects for DNA after that, and no one matched. Hmm. By 2003, the case was dormant. Investigators had run out of ideas, and the case went on a shelf. Hmm. But in 2009, as DNA testing improved, they took the case down from the shelf for another look. Quote, it's been one of the larger mysteries, Alaska State Troopers spokesperson Beth Ipsen told the Anchorage Daily News in 2009. This is a true whodunit. In 2007, James Stogsdill was assigned to the case. Going through the case files, he became interested in Nicholas Dazer, Steve Downs' roommate, because Dazer had been fired from his campus security officer job his sophomore year because he had a gun in his dorm room, and you can't break the rules if you want to be on the security team. The presence of the gun interested Stodgeville. 
When Stodgedale interviewed Dazer in 2009, Dazer said the year before he was fired in 1993, he didn't have a gun in his room, but his roommate Steve did. Ah. In fact, Steve had two, as well as a switchblade knife. (gasps) Dazer, who by the time um, Stodgedale talked to him, was an Oregon attorney, said Steve brought the guns with him to UAF freshman year. It was a 22 caliber pistol and a Derringer pistol. Stodgill then interviewed Kate, Steve's college girlfriend from back then. Her last name was now Lee, Kate Lee. They had dated for three years and her recollection of Steve and guns goes back and forth over the 12 years between then and now. And it's tough to keep track, but here's what I understand to be its evolution. She told Stodgill in 2009 that Steve was into weapons, but he didn't have a gun. That's supported through a transcript from the conversation, though later it somehow morphed into she didn't know if he had a gun or not, and it caused a lot of confusion. In 2019, testifying before a grand jury, Kate said that in the spring of 1993, shortly after they started going out, Steve and she went target shooting one day, Steve bringing a 22 caliber pistol. At the time, the grand jury at least took the implication to be that it was Steve's gun, it's possible Kate wasn't clear about it, but that's how it was taken by those who reviewed the testimony. Then in 2021, at a pretrial hearing, she recanted, saying Ugh. she never had never known him to own a gun in the more than three years that they dated. She said that the only time she saw him with a gun was that time they went target shooting, but it wasn't his gun, and she wasn't sure it was even the spring of 1993. Oh, then at his trial... She said they had gone target shooting that spring when they started dating, and she assumed the gun was someone else's because she never saw it again, but she wasn't sure. But keep in mind, no one asked her about Steve and guns until 2009, 13 years after they left school and 16 years after Sophie's murder. And if Kate had no interest in guns, it's likely her memories of them would not be strong. Another issue with Kate's back and forth is she could have been being protective. If asked questions decades after dating someone where the answers could land that person as a murder suspect, a lot of people's instinct would be to not want to get the person who they are sure couldn't possibly have done it in trouble. I'm not saying that's what was going through Kate's mind, but it's what goes through a lot of people's minds. And everybody's like, oh, he was such a nice guy. He was so much fun. He was so easygoing, blah, blah, blah. Uh Right. But we all know how that goes. But one thing is sure. (laughs) Well, I'm more to say on that later yes. but one thing is sure something both nicholas dazer and kate back up is whatever the case it's clear that stephen downs liked guns and knives and owned guns and knives and enjoyed playing with guns and knives while at college it doesn't look like they looked into downs further at the time mostly because kate said he didn't have a gun and they were more interested in nick dazer and some other people Stodgedale at the time in 2009 also had a theory that Sophie was killed somewhere else and put in the bathtub. This was in a 2009 Anchorage Daily News story. It said they'd, quote, developed evidence that indicated Uh. that. According to the story, an independent forensic examiner concluded that the body may have been moved to the tub, though specifics weren't made public. I read in one story, and I don't know if this is the same evidence and I couldn't find it again, that it looked like her lighter which had been found underneath her in the drain, had been tossed in the tub. And I don't know if that's the evidence that made them think she had been put in the tub. But I'm thinking, though, she could have dropped it if it was in her hand and somebody was attacking her. It was a very small room. It's not like she's over across the room in the tub. And that 
came out in various ways you know it's like a game of telephone people say they knew she was killed somewhere else and then they say wait she wasn't at the time in 2009 stodgill was begging people to come forward if anything jogged their memory quote we think if she was brought to the bathroom after death then she was killed someplace else in bartlett hall which naturally would mean a dormitory room If that's the case, she was killed in one of the upper floors, then there's people up there who may have heard or saw something that they didn't put any significance to, believing that the crime occurred on the second floor when, in fact, it could have occurred right down the hall from them. I'm thinking there's at least three women who lived on that floor who heard all sorts of stuff. I know, they heard weird shit in the bathroom. James Halpin, the reporter who wrote the story, wrote, It may seem hard to believe that a woman could be raped and shot to death mere feet from dorm rooms crowded with students without drawing anyone's attention. Investigators have pondered that question for 16 years and still aren't satisfied no one heard or saw anything. They're still pondering. Cold case investigator Lindy Minnick said, quote, there's quite a bit of movement late at night, unquote, in a dorm, she said. I feel like, as I said, at least three different people heard loud noises like melanie i think it was melanie said she it sounded like a trash can hitting concrete another woman said that she heard it sounded like firecrackers i will say one of the investigators later said that he was a forensic expert too it's a 22 caliber gun which doesn't make a lot a big booming noise be that as it may like i said at least three people heard something that could have easily been a gunshot Anyway, that whole thing about her being killed somewhere didn't seem to pan out. A decade later, it would doesn't be re- make sense. Yeah, a decade later, it would be reported that one investigator thought she might have been killed elsewhere and her body moved. And, but I think it's kind of that thing. Like, remember when I did Joyce McLean and there was that one investigator with the crazy theory and he <laughs> followed, you know, I think it, this could have been that type of thing because because they can't think of anything else. I'm mm-hmm. not saying it's impossible. It just seems like it'll be taking a big risk to be seen carrying her dead body into the bathroom and the thing is that's where her friend told her to go right to smoke so she was it would have been a hell of a coincidence it's not like her friend was like oh she was gonna go downstairs i don't know how she ended up in that little room right you know right exactly by this time 2009 sophie's mother elena sergey was beyond fed up In 1996, on the third anniversary of Sophie's death, Elena had filed a suit against the university on behalf of herself and her youngest son, Stephen, who was three at the time Sophie died. Mm. Elena was seeking $4 million. She said it had been up to the school to keep her daughter safe, and the university was negligent in providing security. Mm. Elena's lawyer, Christopher Cook, told reporters at the time the suit was filed, It was widely known as a party house. All sorts of people were free to come and go. There was no check-in and check-out procedures. There was no way to tell who was in the dorm, unquote. When this article appeared in 1996, with that quote in it, the university had recently hired a new attorney, Peter Partnow, to represent it in the lawsuit. The previous attorney on the case, Gerald LaParle, had been indicted the week before the Mm. article was published on felony theft charges for helping a client hide $77,000 in divorce proceedings. Mm. Earlier in 1996, LaParle had said in court documents regarding the suit that the killer, not the university, was to blame and Sophie's, quote, own negligence, unquote, Mm. was also partly to blame. I would love to find that document or even an article about it to figure out what he meant. It's hard to see how Sophie was negligent. 
for being up and about in a dorm at night. Again, no one blames a culture that winks at boys having knives and guns in the dorm or the school shooting down security requests from the RAs. It's up to the girls not to get themselves raped and killed. I guess they should just stay locked in their rooms. Wait, no, that wouldn't even work because half the time they're raped by people they know. Oh, well, what are you going to do? She wasn't doing anything unsafe. No. There's an assumption when you're in a protected place like that, that you are safe from being raped and murdered. You know, she wasn't walking down some dark alley. And even if she had, it's still the rapist. But anyway, anyway, shortly after the article appeared, Elena's lawyer and the school's lawyer were in court seeking more information on the case. Both said they needed it to help with their ends of the lawsuit. Mm. Apparently, Alaska state troopers had kept a tight lid on the information to the point where they had told the Sergei family next to nothing about what happened to their daughter, citing the ongoing investigation. Apparently, they told the university more than they told Sophie's family. Part now, the university's lawyer told the court, as a defendant in this civil litigation, UAF is hamstrung in its ability to prepare and present its case if it is denied to and use of the only available information on important matters, such as how, where, and when the incidents leading up to the death of Ms. Sergei occurred, hmm. unquote. Sophie's mother wanted the autopsy report and photographs and wanted to be able to subpoena medical examiner Michael Probst, who performed the autopsy for a deposition. Her attorney, Christopher Cook, told reporters that the main reason they'd filed the suit was to get information about Sophie's death since the police weren't telling them anything. The state didn't want to release that information or have the medical examiner deposed, presumably because they didn't want information to get out about some details of the killing so they could nab the right guy. Another story appeared a week or so later saying UAF was looking to settle the case, and that's the last anything that I could find about it. So Hmm. I think they did settle. But in 2009, when Elena talked to Jim Halpin of the Anchorage Daily News, she was still not happy. Elena, at the time of the interview, was about to travel to Fairbanks, which she did every year to attend an annual memorial service for Sophie and other victims of unsolved murders. Hmm. Quote, she needs closure. She needs closure, Elena's friend and roommate, Leslie Hunter, told the reporter and what he described as a sometimes tearful interview in the Hmm. women's Anchorage condo. Quote, I live with her and she's hard to live with sometimes. (laughs) At which point Elena broke in and said, because of it. And her friend Leslie added, there's anger in her yet. Elena said she wanted to know who did it and why, but mostly how come her? Stajal, the investigator in 2009, said in that Anchorage Daily News article, Sophie was truly a victim. As far as we know, she wasn't doing anything dangerous, wasn't out of bars, or doing anything that might precipitate some sort of violence. Meanwhile, there are a lot of potential suspects. As in many of the cases of women killed by a not obvious or apparently not obvious murderer, there are often a frightening number of potential men who could Mm. be the killer. Police had several guys in their sights. One was Kenneth Moto. Remember how Melanie Sagunik, who lived across the hall from the bathroom, said she saw a guy with dark hair who was about 5'8", leaving the women's shower area around 1.30 a.m. and wearing, she said, a gray checked shirt, but somehow that had morphed into a gray t-shirt. Well, when police interviewed Kenneth Moto two days after Sophie was killed, he was wearing a gray t-shirt. He also had dark hair and was about 5'8". Years later, Moto's sister told police he confessed to killing Sophie and said a knife was involved. 
And the reason him saying a knife was involved was significant is because police had not released that to the public. Uh, uh, it turns out there were numerous leaks and everybody on campus knew that a knife was involved. But anyway, yeah. over the years, Moto was involved in multiple crimes of violence against women and ended up in prison on a manslaughter conviction. But while news stories after Downs was arrested years later said Melanie, quote, saw Moto leaving the bathroom, unquote, she actually told investigators that wasn't him. She knew him and would have recognized him. And it also said the man she saw wasn't native, which Moto was. Mm. Another was a guy named Gregory Thornton, who wasn't a student, but was living with his girlfriend in the dorm. Uh. Thornton was supposedly picked out of a lineup by Melanie, it was reported. But it turns out that what actually happened was she was shown six photos and she said four definitely weren't the guy, but she couldn't be sure about the other two. And one of the other two was Thornton. <laughs> and the other one of the other two was somebody who wasn't involved at all. It was just thrown in there. Thornton had reportedly been carrying a 22 caliber pistol on campus at the time of the crime and had been reported as suicidal. Hmm. Just so you know, 22 caliber pistols are a very common gun. They are not rare, so it's not out of the ordinary that a lot of people in this situation <laughs> would have them. Then there was Thad Williamson, who was an acquaintance of Sophie. He was supposedly infatuated with her and had, quote, created a shrine to her and had acted... Ooh. And had acted strangely that night, unquote, according to witness accounts, as accounted in a newspaper story. But I'm not clear on the context. Was the shrine before she was killed or after she oh, was yeah. killed? He told police he dropped off a gift for Sophie at Shirley's room the night she was killed. But Shirley told police that had never happened. When huh. interviewed by investigators right after the murder, his first words were, first of all, I didn't do it. <laughs> He didn't have an alibi for that night. He was interviewed five or six times and considered a prime suspect at one point. There were the two guys the RAs overheard outside the dorm. Oh, yeah. One of the guys was identified as Robert Rago. Even though the RAs said they heard the conversation before Sophie was killed, some people wondered if they could have gotten the dates mixed up. Although it seems more to me like it would be getting their times mixed up because a conversation like that would have happened right after a murder you know, not like a, the day after or something. So it'd be more about the time of night rather than the day. Then, of course, there is Nicholas Dazer, Down's roommate. Despite the fact he was working that night, Kate said he had stopped by the party in her room several times. Hmm. At some point, he too had a gun on campus, which, as I said earlier, got him fired from his patrol job, though that gun was a 40 caliber, not a 22, like the one Steve had. In fact, Steve kept his gun loaded in his dresser drawer, which means Dazer would have had access to it. But then again, so would Steve. Huh. At first, investigators thought Sophie had also been tased, but they figured out at some point later, it's not clear when, but it was closer to when she was killed than to nowadays, that whatever marks they thought were from a taser actually were little knife marks. Ugh. But when they still thought there were tase marks, some investigators said the killer could have been in law enforcement. Yeah. This came up later as a point towards Dazer being a suspect, but he wasn't an actual cop. He was a student security, whatever he was, and they weren't issued tasers or any kind of weapons. So that was a non-starter, even if they had been taser marks, which they weren't. Then there was Billy Wilson, the guy who'd given Kate that unwanted kiss at around 3 a.m., 
the one she said would have um, pissed off Steve Mm -hmm. or wouldn't have happened if Steve had been there. Wilson was supposedly seen shaking, sweating, and hysterical early on the morning Sophie was killed and was also reportedly a heavy drinker who had been, quote, out of control, unquote, that night. Mm. Although it's not clear if the out of control assessment is just based on the fact that he kissed Kate or there's more to it. It's not clear if all that it just kind of snowballed from the story of him being drunk and kissing her. He had cuts on his hand. He had to be mm. treated at hospital for and owned a pocket knife and a gun. The problems were his gun wasn't a 22. Uh. It was an AK 47. Ah! I'm not making that up. The cuts were from a week before Sophie's murder medical records showed. And not that I'm a doctor or investigator, but again, I've, I've been around the block enough with the stuff to know that cuts on a stabber's hand are caused by copious amounts of blood coating the knife, causing it to slide down, his hands to Mm -hmm. slide down. Sophie had two stab wounds inflicted to her eye before she died that that bled, but not heavily. The other stab wounds were post-mortem and post-mortem cuts don't bleed. There were no reports of the scene being a bloodbath either, though I know the tub was run. For all the merits or lack of merits of all these guys being the killer, there's one thing they all lacked that would have tied them to the murder. Yeah. Their DNA didn't match the DNA of the sperm that was found in Sophie's vaginal canal. After that flurry of excitement in 2009 and 2010, things died down again. In 2015, the Alaska State Trooper Cold Case Unit was defunded for budgetary reasons. Mm. But in 2017, it was reestablished with one investigator, Randy McFerrin. They'd gotten a few tips on Sophie's case over the years, so he decided to take another look. Even though those tips didn't lead to anything, quote, it inspired me to, you know, really learn the case and then get it organized. That's your job, Randy. He was still doing that when, in 2018, on the 25th anniversary of the last day of Sophie's life, as all you true crime fans know, the Golden State Killer was caught using DNA ancestor technology. That's right. I won't go into all the ins and outs because you've all heard it a million times by now. And McPherson read about that case in a newspaper. Quote, it just struck me as very interesting. I Mm. thought, well, this might be a new technique we should look into to see if there's any other cases we might be able to work with this. And I spoke with our people at the crime lab. So in mid-2018, he put the DNA from Sophie's case into the GEDmatch database then submitted the results to Parabon Nanolabs in Virginia. Yeah. Stephen Downs and Nicholas Dazer met on move-in day their freshman year at UAF in August 1992. Stephen was from Auburn, Maine, which, if you were to drive on U.S. and Canadian interstate highways, would be a 4,566-mile trip. To put that in perspective, if you were to go in the same direction from Auburn, but instead of going west to Alaska head east you'd get to moscow and russia and then have another 200 miles to go to equal the distance between auburn maine and fairbanks alaska yes the united states is a big country stephen was an english major at uaf and reportedly made the dean's list though i can't find any evidence of this online can i ask a question that you probably don't know it why did he go there did he ever say i don't know i don't know i wondered too but there's a lot of information about him steve and nicholas hit it off immediately they liked to party together shared a taste of music and they also shared a love of guns 
Mm. Kevin went hunting and fishing together while at school. Junior and senior year, they rented cabins off campus, living in them with their girlfriends. Downs was Dazer's best friend, and in 1998, Downs was a groomsman at Dazer's wedding in Portland, Oregon. (laughs) People just say Portland-like. Everybody is going to assume it's Oregon. I know. Um, Downs, after college, went back to Auburn, where his parents, Carla and Philip, were both teachers. He moved to Tucson, Arizona in 1998, where he earned a master's in business administration from the University of Arizona and lived there until 2003, though he did manage to rack up a DWI in Auburn in 1999. Hmm. It's not clear if he's married or not. I feel like in my first story on this, I said he had been married and was divorced, but I couldn't find it. Oh, they call it OUI in Maine, by the way, right, okay. not DWI. Actually, I got it right out of the Auburn police log, and it said DWI in the police log. Mm. I think some cops just say DWI instead of OUI, yeah, okay. but it doesn't you matter. You can say whatever you want. Right. At some point after he moved back to Maine for good in 2003, he bought a two-story, three-bedroom house on Hillcrest Street in Auburn, mm. a leafy residential neighborhood with houses on one-acre lots. He worked in the pharmaceutical industry for many years before becoming a registered nurse in 2011 and then worked as an RN at Harris House, a residential home for disabled people in Livermore Falls. And I think it's interesting that this is the second time Livermore Falls has come up in one of our episodes. I know. Episodes. It is strange. In 2016, he was fired after complaints from female nurses it doesn't say what he did, just on at least two occasions he made them uncomfortable. I have to believe that's an understatement or he wouldn't have been fired. I know. He also did things like putting a bunch of medication in cups on a tray and not labeling what the medication was, <laughs> as well as putting down on charts he gave patients medication hours before he actually gave it to them. He said it was because of staffing issues, but you know, you still do your job. He got a warning from the nursing board on, quote, a totality of substandard performance, unquote, Hmm. which you really don't want to get. He had to sign a consent agreement with the board that required him to complete a course in professional boundaries, which he did. He didn't lose his nursing license. It's not clear if he did anything for a living, but by many accounts, he remained unemployed after he was fired and didn't get another job. I don't know how he afforded the mortgage on that nice 2,500 square foot house in Auburn. But in December 2018, Randy McFerrin, the Alaska cold case detective, had a name for the DNA that had been found 25 years before in connection with Sophie Sergi's murder. Steve Downs. Long story short, because I won't go through all the ins and outs, we all know how it works. The DNA he'd submitted to GEDmatch had been a 23% match to a woman in Vermont. And looking at her relatives, Downs was a nephew. Obviously, a DNA match to an aunt isn't enough to arrest someone. They checked and found out he'd been a student at UAF, and he'd lived in the dorm and everything else. They also needed his DNA. McFerrin contacted Maine State Police to see if they could collect some DNA. You've seen it in the true crime docs. The guy tosses a soda can in a rubbish bin or drops a cigarette on the sidewalk or they go through his garbage. And the or the of, bubble gum one. like Right, the bubble gum one from that episode. Whatever episode it was. 28, I want to say, but I don't remember for sure. But that, 
wasn't going to work with Downs. He rarely left his house (laughs) where he lived alone. And when he did, it wasn't on any sort of regular schedule. The police surveying him found. He didn't put his rubbish outside for collection for the entire time. Ew. Under surveillance. Maine State Police finally visited him at his house on February 12th, 2019 to talk to him. At the time, Detective McFerrin from Alaska was getting ready to fly from Fairbanks to Auburn. Jay Pelletier, a deputy corporal with Maine State Police, said Down seemed surprised that they wanted to talk to him, but was cooperative. They asked him about Sophie, and he said he had no idea who she was. Pelletier showed him pictures of Sophie and asked if he remembered the night of April 26, 1993. Down said, oh, yeah, but he didn't know anything about the murder. If he had, he would have been forthright from the jump. But he did remember posters of Sophie's face on campus. That poor girl, he said, he said he lived on the third floor, but spent most of his time in his girlfriend's room on the fourth floor and never, ever, ever went to the second floor. Uh And he said he was with his girlfriend that night she was killed. He suggested, just like he had in 1993, and again, not for the last time, that maybe soldiers stationed at nearby Fort Wainwright at the time should be investigated. Yeah. The police asked him if he was sure he didn't remember anything and showed him her photo again. And he said again, I remember the pictures. It's terrible. Poor girl. By February 14th, McFerrin was in town and police asked Steve to drive down to the Auburn police station to give a DNA swab and fingerprints, which he did. At one point, according to reporters who listened to the audio tape of this during his trial, he asked whether he could have a lawyer present for the DNA collection, but that didn't stop the process. It's not clear exactly what he said or what the cops said to him. I didn't listen to the audio tapes, but I would think since they had a warrant out of Alaska for the DNA, lawyer or no lawyer, he had to give the DNA. Yeah. He then says, according to the Lewiston Sun Journal story, that he should probably have someone speaking on his behalf that he wants to get a professional to speak for him. Mm. He was read his Miranda rights and questioned for an hour and a half. Later, when asked at the trial why he didn't stop when Downs asked for a lawyer, McFerrin said he just kept engaging with us. Mm. And again, this is Maureen. I'm not sure what his wording was or if he ever said the word lawyer, the articles aren't clear on what he said. As we've said many times, it shouldn't be this little game where you have to know the secret code. I know. If Come everybody on. was required to have a lawyer when they're about to be charged with a murder from the yeah. start, then we wouldn't have these problems. No shit. Anyway, McFerrin told Downs the DNA at the scene was his. Quote, we have a very strong reason to believe that you're responsible for this, McFerrin told Downs. Wow, Downs said, that's kind of intense. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he said it with that much motion, but Downs asked at one point if detectives had looked into whether the GIs that he said were frequently on campus from Fort Wainwright were responsible. He told him a story that no one has heard before or since. KT VF and Fairbanks reported this, that once when he was sleeping in his girlfriend's room, three men broke in. One Ooh. was white and two were wait for it black they had shaved heads like they were in the military he didn't say what happened after they broke in but he said that the gis would come to campus on the weekends and party because that's where all the girls were 
He did not tell this story about the break-in to the cops on the afternoon that they talked to him when Sophie's body was found, mm-hmm. though he did bring up the GIs. It was just this general, has anybody looked at the guys from Fort Wainwright? But um, that whole story about the guys breaking into the room was new to everybody. McFerrin asked Downs about the night Sophie was murdered. Who was there with you? McFerrin asked. I never associated with that kid, said Downs. McFerrin asked him again. Downs said he had no idea who he was with, but he knew he was with his girlfriend. (laughs) McFerrin said, it's not a matter of if you were there. You were there. The semen is your semen. Downs said, it's just not possible. Later, as McFerrin persisted, according to the news stories, and I'm sure he was using the read technique. Yeah, I know. I was thinking that. One story said he used a variety of techniques. Uh. Down said, I'm confident that nothing is going to match up, and this is going to be explained by some kind of misunderstanding, and we are going to be able to smooth past this. Okay. McFerrin responded, but what if we are not? What if it's, <laughs> what if it's not, Steve? The DNA and fingerprints down had submitted at that meeting at the Auburn police station were sent to the main crime lab in Augusta, as well as the Alaska crime lab. And the DNA came back from both as a match. You'll read in some places that the fingerprints didn't match. And that's true, but misleading. The fingerprints found at the scene weren't of high enough quality to match anyone. I don't want to get into a whole thing here, but fingerprint science has been called into question a lot recently it's very subjective people think oh there's fingerprints on anything and you can just match it and that not happens so the fingerprints were are kind of non essential especially with all those people in and out of that friggin' i know problem. downs 44 at the time was arrested on february 15 2019 charged with sexual assault and murder the arrest was made in the parking lot at the fireside inn in auburn oh, i know where that is and me too i'm not sure why it was made there but it's possible that they had a warrant to search his house which was relatively large as far as i'm concerned 2500 square feet so he had to spend the night at the hotel is what i'm thinking it doesn't say why by the way in his house they f- did find a 22 caliber pistol we'll get to that in a bit and a knife did they find a bunch of garbage that he had? I'm out? sure they did. They didn't <laughs> say, but Down's parents had gotten a call from the Maine State Police that Friday night he was arrested, but they hadn't answered, thinking it was a scam call. Mm-hmm. They found out about his arrest from a reporter, and they <laughs> said they were in shock at the news, which I can imagine. I won't go through all the reaction stuff that I did in our mini three years ago, except for this one quote from an Auburn resident, quote, It's unfortunate, and I feel for the parents. In this day and age, nothing surprises me. Anybody can be from anywhere, and you never know what their past is, unquote. And I just want to say, as I said three years ago, he was a fucking lifelong resident of Auburn, a graduate (laughs) of Edward Little. You know, it's not like he drifted in from somewhere. I just think it's funny how people always want to distance themselves. I know. Nobody from Auburn could have done this, you know. I know. Downs was taken to Androscoggin County Jail in Auburn. I know where that is. Me too. And said he'd work across the street. Okay. And said he'd fight extradition because there must be some mistake. The Uh state asked that he be held without bail because he could be a flight risk, Hmm. having lived outside the state. His attorney, James Howiniak, 
asked for $5,000 bail, saying that Downs is a lifelong Maine resident and a 1992 graduate of Edward Little High School in Auburn, owns his own house, and his Mm. parents live locally. On top of all that, he is intelligent and well-educated. With several college degrees, he is pet-loving and a caring nurse Mm. who has always been mild-mannered. I think the caring nurse thing, how an EAC might have wanted to reconsider that. but Also, having several college degrees, that makes you not a flight risk. Somehow. I know. Pet yeah. loving. I know. Well, maybe he wouldn't leave his pets. So. I know. But Howiniak, who was originally assigned to the case since Downs was unemployed and had no money, was shortly hired by Downs' parents. Downs was also represented by Howiniak's partner, Jesse Archer, and Fairbanks attorney, Frank Spaulding. Howiniak said at the bail hearing that the gruesome rage crime Downs was accused of was just completely alien to anything mm-hmm. we have seen in Downs' background. Assistant District Attorney Patricia Reynolds-Regan argued Downs was not entitled to bail and that the judge should use his discretion to hold him until his return to Alaska on a governor's warrant. She said normal bail laws did not apply because Downs was being held on a warrant from out of state as a fugitive Mm -hmm. from justice and that Downs' guilt or innocence should not play a role in the judge's bail decision. The judge agreed and Downs was held without bail. After the hearing, Howinian said his client has some concerns about whether a perpetrator from the nearby military base was somehow involved in the crime and that Downs was with his girlfriend, quote, not in vicinity of crime scene. So Downs, my guess is, did not share with his attorney by that point that his fucking sperm was inside the dead girl. I know. Anyway, I won't go into all the ins and outs, but it took until May before, this was in February. It took him until May before he began to make the 4,566-mile journey to Fairbanks, Alaska, which ended up taking 83 days. First of all, there's what his attorney delicately referred to as a restriction issue with the airplane. Okay, let's talk about the elephant. In the room. <laughs> that saying means that there's something really big and obvious in the room but no one is talking about it. In this case, Downs is the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Not to fat shame, but the guy is morbidly obese. Yes. I'm not good at gauging weight. That, that's why I'm the weight I am. <laughs> but he is well over 400 pounds. Oh, yeah. Everyone was very delicate about mentioning it, from what I can tell. But I believe that is why he could not fly from Maine to Alaska. I know it was hard for you to restrain yourself with the elephant in the room, but I think if it applies anywhere, and I know it's it's mean to say it, but we mentioned this when we did the mini a few years ago, you are not that big unless you've got, you know, something more than physically wrong with you. Yeah. There's, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I did watch many seasons of The Biggest Loser, though. Right. Anyway, on his trip across the country, Downs ended up staying at four federal prisons along the way. And one move was delayed. I think he was in Oklahoma at the time because of a mysterious virus outbreak at the prison, Mm -hmm. making it so everyone was quarantined. I thought that was interesting. This was in late summer of 2019. But you got to wonder, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a mysterious violence. Howiniak had real issues with all of that. I don't blame him. Not only because it violated the Alaska law that once he was charged, the trial had to begin in 120 days. And usually that doesn't mean the trial itself is going to happen, but the process of the trial has to get started. He was also having trouble having confidential discussions with Downs because he couldn't see him in person 
because he was being taken across the country and all phone calls from jails are recorded. Quote, I've never experienced anything like this, he said. And I don't think even the Alaska authorities have, frankly. It just seems incomprehensible to me that a person charged with murder is being held hundreds and thousands of miles away from his legal representation in two different states. This was when he was halfway across, so it was only two states. Without any meaningful ability to communicate about thousands of pages of law enforcement investigative materials that have accumulated over the past 26 years. It seems like an almost Kafka-esque situation (laughs) Howaniak said. And the Lewiston Sun Journal article that quoted Howaniak then helpfully told readers Howaniak's reference was to Franz Kafka, a Czech born German writer best known for the bizarre, oppressive, or nightmarish qualities of his fiction. Unquote. Thank you, Wikipedia. What that's telling me is that. The reporter and the editor didn't fucking know what Kafkaesque meant. You know, there was a day when you could use a fairly common phrase and readers would just have to go fucking look it up instead of putting a paragraph in the middle of an article explaining what Kafkaesque means because everybody's so fucking ignorant. Okay. I'm just saying. Downs was finally able... (laughs) Downs was finally able to plead not guilty in Alaska in August 2019, and bail was set at a million dollars. Howanek said he and Jesse Archer had serious concerns that Alaska had the wrong guy. Quote, (sighs) we find it very hard to believe that Steve would have been carrying up to three weapons that night in a crowded dormitory from the fourth floor down to the second floor girls' bathroom, Howanek said. And again, that pistol can fit in your pocket. The knife, I bet you that there were boys at that school who wore knives under belts and nobody said boo. I mean, they're kids in Maine who do. Yeah. You know? How said the allegations were a gun, a knife, and possibly a stun gun were used by the assailant. Quote, we find it hard to believe that nobody would have seen him or heard him go down two flights of stairs and into a bathroom and commit that crime and not be seen by anybody. My response, well, somebody did it. And he was seen, quote, we're convinced that if we get a fair trial, he'll be acquitted, Howaniak said. The integrity of this investigation is very poor. He raised the issue at that time of alternative suspects, which would end up being a big part of the defense strategy, including, quote, one in particular who we believe actually committed the crime. He also raised issues with the nature, and by this point, pretrial hearings were happening. He raised issues with the nature of the evidence against Downs, the DNA. Over 18 months, he would file more than a dozen motions. He had an issue with discovery because they had originally given him 3,000 pages and then dumped, I think I did an update at the time, around this time, dumped another 5,000 pages of the case file on them, you know, the old prosecutor dump. Howaniak filed in late 2019 a 200-page motion citing issues with the evidence, the crime scene, the investigation, the DNA, and more. Around this time, weirdly, all the Lewiston Sun Journal stories started saying, besides describing the fact that Sophie had been stabbed and shot, also that she was, quote, struck with a blunt instrument, gagged with ligature and shocked with a stun gun yes this phrase would continue through all their stories through down's trial all i can believe is it came from Howiniac. 
because of the volume of information. I haven't seen anywhere in any other story I've read on this anywhere that she was struck with a blunt. Yeah, I know. I read that. Or gagged with ligature. And the stun gun thing had been done away with years ago. And so I have no idea where it's coming from. Obviously, the reporter or an editor cut and pasted it into every article, but you'd think at some point they'd notice that the information didn't appear anywhere else. And except for some brief discussion at trial about how there was no evidence of a stun gun or taser would never be mentioned by anyone. And you'd think that after at the trial they talked about there being no stun gun or taser, (laughs) they would have taken that out of the article, but they didn't. And it drives me crazy. My theory is before the pandemic, before people were zooming and stuff, the reporter was getting all his information from Howiniak, the Sun Journal reporter. Mm-hmm. And Howiniak would tell him, this is what happened today in the pretrial hearing in Alaska. And I know that there was no other good way for the reporter to get the information except for to call the prosecutor too. There was so much information and there's a lot of stuff that Howiniak said even in the trial that had been disproved years before because they just had so much that um, I, I think that's where it came from. And um, not to belabor it. Anyway, how predicted a long road for the case, quote, it's going to be a logistical challenge to bring this case to trial. And I see it being a lengthy trial, unquote. Mm-hmm. Little did he know. In early 2020, things were plugging along. There had been several pre-trial hearings, which stopped the clock on the 120 day until a trial thing. Then, of course, COVID hit and everything Uh. came to a halt. Downs was eventually tried two years later after a long, long, long amount of legal wrangling. And I won't go into it all or even the trial itself, since a lot of the information has been covered already in this podcast. But I'll hit some highlights of what the trial centered around. The alternative suspects was a big one. Howiniak wanted 16 allowed to be brought in at trial. The judge allowed three. Kenny Moto, the guy who had the gray shirt. Gerald Thornton, the suicidal guy who had the 22 caliber pistol. And Don's roommate, Nicholas Dazer. A reminder, listeners, that alternative suspects are there to sow reasonable doubt in the jury. The suspects themselves aren't being tried. So Howiniak didn't have to prove that they could have done it or anything like that, just show that they might have, that these guys could have done it too. Kenneth Moto, who supposedly confessed to his sister that he did it, testified at trial that he was actually watching a cold case TV show about the crime and told his sister he'd been a suspect, not that he did it. Um, (laughs) Thanks, sis. Yeah, you may remember he supposedly knew Sophie had been stabbed when police hadn't released that evidence. He said he asked police when they talked to him if she'd been stabbed because that's what everybody around campus and everything were saying. The defense argued in pretrial motions that Moto was seen by two women coming out of the women's bathroom by two witnesses, but we already know they didn't say that at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of them said it was not him, and the other one said it wasn't a native guy. In the lawsuit that Sophie's mother filed back in 1996, the university lawyers apparently, in their answer to the suit, said the university had, quote, concluded that Kenny Moto had killed Sophie Sergey. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting that the university solved the case back in 1996, yet the police hadn't. 
The motion also said that, quote, Sergey's best friend, and I'm not sure if that would be Joanne Sundown or Shirley Wasuli, who's now Shirley Ankelkahak, said that Moto had been staring at the two of them and verbally harassing them. Hmm. And that was according to discovery provided by the state to um, the hmm. defense. But this is something I've never read anywhere or seen either of the friends say in any of the interviews I've read. Not that it didn't happen, but it's not clear if it would have been that weekend or the year before. Because Moto wasn't living on campus that semester. He had lived in the dorm the year before. And not that it didn't, you know, because guys are assholes. (laughs) And there was stuff, some of it erroneous at the trial about the other alternative suspects too. But the bottom line... Their sperm wasn't in Sophie's vagina. Exactly. How any ex spent a lot of time trying to discredit the DNA, but the thing is, for there to have been like, oh, they're, you know, the lab, he tried to show the lab was negligent. They didn't know what they were doing in the 90s, all this kind of stuff. But in cases where there's been a DNA mix up, they've had the DNA of the accused person and then accidentally mixed it up with something else. So for that to have happened, like Down's DNA accidentally getting on the slide that McFerrin used um, the results. He didn't yeah, have where the would they have gotten his right, DNA? Right. They would have had to have had Down's DNA in the first place, exactly. which they didn't get till February 14th, 2019, because that's how DNA mistakes happen. Howaniac did try to hit home at the trial before it, as it became more and more clear that the DNA was legit, that Downs could have had consensual sex with Sophie sometime that weekend. Hmm. But we talked about the fact that no sperm was found on her underpants and she didn't do any laundry while she was there. I'm sure she brought more than one pair of underpants. And I don't know that the police, I don't know if they took her other clothing. I doubt they did, but still. And I'll talk more on that in a minute or two. They found a gun, a 22 caliber pistol when they searched Downs home in Auburn with a warrant but he said he bought it from a guy in Turner in 2016. Turner is a town right next to Auburn. And the guy, Sherman Varney, testified mm-hmm. at the trial that that was true. He didn't remember Down's name, but he did remember Down's girth. My feeling is it's however many years later, 22 caliber pistols are a dime a dozen. There was testimony. There was another kid at the trial who was a friend of Nick and Steve back at school who said they went shooting all the time and Steve always had guns and Steve loved his guns and loved his knives and was always doing shit with his guns and knives. Anyway, there was also a lot of back and forth about the bullet. Could it really be identified? Blah, blah, blah. To me, it doesn't matter because they didn't have the gun. But I think a lot of it was how Winniak was trying to get the jury is overwhelmed by all this shit is he was and as everyone else was how also tried to get down's dna thrown out because he'd asked for a lawyer and they hadn't given him one but the judge ruled against that again relying on the newspaper stories i'm not sure what arguments were made and what the judge's reasoning was for not throwing it out i will say this people once you ask for a lawyer shut your fucking pie hole no shit but if they have a warrant for don't ever voluntarily well okay voluntarily give dna but if they have a warrant for your dna you have to give it whether you have a lawyer or not yeah just like if they have a warrant to search your house you have to but let you don't have to talk this annoying yet illuminating testimony took place during the trial the original medical examiner is long dead but retired forensic pathologist norman thompson testified he'd been asked to review the autopsy and how asked him if the autopsy said sophie was sexually assaulted 
He did not make a statement that a sexual assault had occurred, Thompson said. He does not cite sexual assault in the final diagnosis. Thompson said there was no evidence of internal or external trauma to Sophie's genital area, but Thompson added that didn't mean it's proof she hadn't been sexually assaulted. Exactly. As I'm saying this, the absence of injury simply means there's no evidence of injury. I can't take the next step and say that means there's no evidence of sexual assault. He added, obviously, if there are injuries to the genitals, it is difficult to argue that some force was not applied. But in general, it's been well known for decades, at least since I did my training and considerably before that, but an individual who has been well-documented to sustain a sexual assault may not have any injuries that are visible on the autopsy or in the hospital examination, unquote. Thompson thank said, you. I know, thank you. Finally, somebody says it. Um, <laughs> Thompson said that in cases where sexual assault is alleged, quote, maybe only 20% of people will have a genital injury, unquote. He said tests revealed Sergey had no alcohol or illegal drugs in her system when she died. He said she had been shot in the lower back of the right side of her head, where the tip of the barrel of the gun had been pressed against her skin. The small caliber bullet followed a trajectory that exited her skull above her left eye, but stopped under the skin, suggesting her head may have been pressed against a hard surface, such as the bathtub, tile wall, or tile floor at the time she was shot. Quote, I would expect death to have occurred within minutes, he said. Defense attorneys asked Kristen Denning, a forensic scientist, whether it was possible Sophie had engaged in consensual sexual intercourse within 48 hours of her death, but had changed her underwear before she was killed. Denning said it was possible. Asked whether she could tell from the evidence whether Sophie had had consensual sex or was sexually assaulted. Denning said she couldn't tell, of course. And I know how Winniak had to do his job, but I'm going to say she did not have consensual sex. Uh And more on this in a second. There was unrelated male DNA from possibly two people on her right exposed breast. How Winniak used this to show that the killer could have been someone else. My response to that is that there were a lot of men in and out of that room, including among the 19 people who went in before the investigators got there and closed the scene. And I'm cynical enough about men to believe someone could have touched her exposed breasts, either accidentally or on purpose. And I've read articles where paramedics, not, I know there are, most of them are us, and other people at scenes of crimes who take the opportunity to cop a feel is disgusting. I'm sorry if I'm saying disgusting things, but it's not clear if it was touch DNA, but they did remove some saliva or something there but it's possible somebody drooled on her it's possibly somebody wiped her mouth and right in any case as far as i'm concerned it's the sperm in her vagina that tells the tale not unrelated dna on her breasts so to answer the reporter's question i know it was a long time ago at the beginning of this episode how would i have voted on the jury I say the DNA tells the tale. As we know, most cases are circumstantial. You have to find somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Look at it like an algebra or a logic problem. Do we believe the DNA is accurate? Yes, there isn't room for error or mistake in this case, and I have no reason to doubt the DNA. Do we believe Sophie had consensual sex with Stephen Downs? As a woman, 
I say, no way. I have no doubt. I give Hwinnia credit for not trying to prove she was promiscuous, but maybe he didn't because he couldn't. She hadn't been drinking. She hadn't been doing drugs. There was no evidence she even had a boyfriend, much less be the kind of girl that was going to have a one night stand or one afternoon stand or whatever they think she had. I don't even think he thinks she had sex. I think that's the only when the guy's sperm is in the woman's vagina and she's been murdered. The only defense is that it was consensual. My question would be, when would she have had the sex? Let's say she was the kind of girl when she went to smoke. He said that there were her movements for the entire weekend hadn't been accounted for. But actually, if you read the newspaper articles and stuff from the time, she had pretty full days with her friends. She didn't spend any time by herself. Would she have had the sex when she went to smoke? Well, then, of course, it would have been on underpants unless she had the sex in the bathtub and then laid in the bathtub with her pants Mm. down and breasts exposed until someone else came along to shoot her and stab her. But as a woman, I can tell you, say I did have sex in the bathtub of a dorm room with some guy I didn't know. I'm not going to lay there with my pants down. I know. My boob out waiting for somebody to come (laughs) and murder me. It's dumb. So then, and if she had sex the day before and changed her underpants, like I said, when would she have it? I am beyond reasonable doubt that her having consensual sex with Stephen Downs and then being murdered by someone else is way more unlikely than him raping and killing her for no good reason. Downs is scheduled to be sentenced in September. Uh. Howaniak moved for a new trial right after he was found guilty, but that was rejected in March. He said he plans to appeal. Elena Sergey died last year. She lived long Uh-oh. enough to see Downs arrested, at least. Uh. Sophie's older brother, Alexei, the one she wanted to follow into the Navy said after the verdict was read that he knew Downs would be found guilty, but still he felt relief that the jurors did find him guilty. He said of Elena, Sophie's mother, on special occasions, she'd just burst out crying for a little bit and she'd start a prayer and start praying. I said to myself, you know, one of these days they'll find that guy. They will find him. Nobody can hide for so long. And then he said, if I were face to face with him, I'd say you took something precious from us. Even though we were a small family, her uncles, her aunts, her cousins, we were all close. But I forgive you for what you did. Forgiveness, but I'll never forget. Uh, That is the story. Thank you. Thanks. And and I just want to say to a lot of people described him as a fun loving guy, always in a good mood. That doesn't say he wouldn't commit this kind of murder in fact i was just listening to another podcast about a woman who was emotionally and physically abused by her husband and he was the same type of person you can be a narcissist you can be a rapist i would like to know more about his life after that but obviously he's not just a normal fun well i'd like to know what his issue was when he was a nurse yeah like why right like i found the the final people that worked with him what i I found the legal document when they ruled that he had to take that course but he wouldn't lose his license and it just said that that a nurse had said he was saying stuff to her that made her uncomfortable while they were talking about a patient and it looks like that was not dismissed but kind of okay and then a second nurse a little while later had the same issue with him. Hmm. But my feeling is 
it takes a lot to report somebody and like I saw in a lot of newspaper stories that made them feel uncomfortable was in quotes and it almost felt like it was trivializing it but obviously that's a there's more to it yeah than that and the guy got fired he was doing things nurses shouldn't do like putting medication without lazy labeling it and well it seems like being irresponsible i mean i know rns make a lot of money but he was working at a rehabilitation home not in a hospital not to demean that but that there's less money to be had there but he was working in pharmaceuticals before that which is just crawling with money. So you kind of wonder what his history was. When I was writing this, I lost a big chunk of it. And I had like 50 stories I'd been going through to get stuff. But like there was one point, you know how how Winniak described him as having multiple degrees and pet loving. There was another one later where he went on. And when he was, you know, in college, he was a good looking kid and everybody liked him and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, man, you know that that doesn't mean anything. People are so superficial about how they view, especially somebody who's jovial. It can hide Um, a lot of stuff. I know somebody right now who a lot of people think, Oh, he's a great guy. He's so giving and blah, blah, blah. And he's not. Right. He's he's a narcissist. He's phony. And that man is now, first of all, like you said, DNA doesn't lie. Right. There have been DNA mistakes. They would have had to have his DNA. My feeling about how it happened was maybe it wasn't the first time that he hung around that girl's bathroom. Because if you're, would be rapist or something that's where you're gonna that's a good place to grab a girl just she was a victim of circumstance i was thinking the other thing too is he could have seen her maybe when she was outside smoking or she was going to smoke and maybe she had her smokes in her hand and he goes oh you're you're um going to smoke a cigarette can i have a cigarette and you know how smokers are you know they're clannish but you know they they've been able to bond over the fact that nobody wants them smoking so if she's like and he's like oh can i go have a cigarette with you i mean i don't think that's necessarily dangerous behavior you're in a dorm there's another person who wants to smoke you're going to this place where there's event you can you know i'm just thinking i don't think she was planning to have so no. well she could have ran into him in the hall or something like there are all sorts of scenarios of what could have gone on that night but the bottom line is he raped and killed her the intercourse happened whoever raped or killed time. her right yeah. whoever raped or killed her even if she had been partying and stuff but there is absolutely nothing about this young woman to, to indicate that she would have had sex with a random guy who she didn't know he could have said when they first arrested him and stuff oh yeah well i did have sex with her and he said he didn't know her and it granted that doesn't make you guilty i mean people don't want to but he also said at one point something like well i know that people have been wrongly convicted and i'm like yeah but they've been proven that they were wrongly convicted because the DNA belonged to somebody else. I, I was just going to say this uh, familial DNA, but a lot of people are worried. Yeah. They should be. She is an in- indigenous woman. I don't believe that was the reason it took so long to solve 
this case. I just believe they were not the best investigators. And then that other big case came up a month later and they were understaffed. And I think that the crime scene was not respected and all sorts of stuff. I think that if we could ever get a hold of that lawsuit, which we won't be able to, I think the school may have, there may have been some issues as far as the school goes with her being indigenous, but it sounds like a lot of their students there were, but this is one case where um, she wasn't forgotten and they managed to solve it. And it seems like the investigators for all their ineptitude, at least at the beginning, the newer ones wanted to solve this case. One of the issues with it, I think, is that at the beginning was that they were probably overwhelmed by the amount of evidence, the fact that, first of all, why the bathroom wasn't sealed off, I don't understand. I think they sealed the bathroom. They sealed the bathroom. But as far as the rest of the dorm went, people were still just coming and going. But people were going into before. Oh, oh, before before the cops got there. Yes. I think the biggest issue too, besides all that specific stuff, is their assessment that this is some crazed serial killer, that it doesn't sound to me like a crazed serial killer type killing. It sounds like a rape by somebody who used weapons to intimidate or scare their victim, who didn't know how to kill her well with the knife, or maybe didn't want to get blood all over himself once she started bleeding when he stabbed her in the eye. So he shot her, somebody who would be carrying his weapons around because he loved his fucking weapons. And I don't Mm -hmm. think enough emphasis was put on the fact like, Oh, where's the gun? Oh, did he have the gun? This is a guy who loved his fucking weapons. Everybody said that even the girlfriend who couldn't decide in the three years, if he had guns or not. And it's like, give me a break. He and his buddy, Nick were going hunting. They lived in cabins off campus so they could go hunting all the time. Don't tell me he didn't have a fucking gun. I believe the guy, the roommate who said he showed up freshman year, August of freshman year with two guns. Yeah. You know, cause he probably drove cross country. Cause the first time I'm thinking, well, how did he get him on a plane? Cause I'm he sure lived he there over the summer. I mean, there was too much, there was so much that I didn't get into this. A lot of things with the trial and with his lawyers, back and forth i thought the story of what happened and the investigation was more interesting than all the back and forth about the lawyers issues and the bottom line is the dna tells the tale exactly that story by the guy from the lewiston sun it's a circumstantial case how would you vote you know but most cases are circumstantial yeah and also i don't consider his dna in her vagina circumstantial I consider that evidence, but also there were issues as much as I crap on some of the reporting and it was just too long to get into this, but Judy Meyer, the executive editor of the Lewiston Sun Journal, Kennebec Journal and Morning Sentinel wrote an op-ed after this was all over about how the press should be able to have access to trials. And this trial was live streamed, but there were so many issues, problems with the streaming, internet issues, issues where the reporter in Lewiston couldn't access the trial, even though people in Alaska could. She made some really good points. But anyway, since that was so long, we don't have an NNW. No, we'll be back next time. Right. We'll be back in two weeks with with your next episode. Yeah. So I guess that that's it right yes good night
Bye-bye. Now, don't, I know you're going to want to say something, but wait till after I say this, okay? Because this is my, this is my bit. Okay, let's talk about the elephant. <laughs> Which is Steve. And as I a told fat- you not to fucking say anything. 